All right, today we're looking at Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. I told Oliver I would raise this up. So is that better? Let me turn it to. All right. I think that's good, right? All right. Good to see you guys. Um, let me highlight the invitation to come to the hymn sing tonight. Um, going to involve some city church people as well. Michelle's going to help us sing, and uh, Matt and Michaela, you guys, Sevilla, you guys know them, are going to be helping out too. So um, uh, it's not just singing, it's also a little preaching. So it's singing hymns, but also um, telling some of the stories in the background, which I love to do. Um, but first, we're going to look at this text this morning, um, Zephaniah chapter 3. And I have a confession to make as we begin. I've never really liked musicals. Never really liked musicals. Now, I had to, I had to revise that slightly when both my kids, Cooper and Isaac, were in various mu musicals when they went to Hume Fogg. Um, so there was a certain aspect, but just the idea that you would say something and then break out into singing, it just seemed a little kind of ridiculous to me. I could get on with uh, Les Mis because they didn't say it and then sing it. They just sang all the way through, so that was a little better. Um, but, you know, when I look at a passage like this, um, I feel like maybe I need to, to examine my own heart. And what is it about musicals that I don't like? Because God talks here about how he is going to exult over his people with loud singing. 
I, I think if I did that in the, in, in the presence of my children, <laughs> you know, Rick Punkshaw probably has this experience all the time. Dad, <laughs> shut up, right? Can't imagine, you know, if you know Rick, you know. And, and, I, and that's probably the number one thing I hear from my kids as well. Like, Dad, don't talk so loud. But God reveals himself in this text as one that's almost embarrassingly giddy over his bride. And maybe musicals in some way give us a foretaste of what God's heart for his people is actually like. You see, in the gospel and in the scriptures, we have the self-disclosure of God. God discloses, God reveals his heart for his people. You know, we often think of prophecy, and Zephaniah is one of the prophets. So this is a prophetic book, and we all, I think so often, think of the prophecy books as being mostly about when. Some things are going to happen, and let's try to figure out when. But honestly, the real focus of the prophetic books is who and what he's like. They're more about God revealing his heart, self-disclosure. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to consider what do we see here about the heart of God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I would say the first thing to realize is the gospel is bigger than we think. It's not just a little personal salvation story, though the idea that God would love us personally and individually is precious. But God has a bigger plan for his world. And as we look at this passage, I want us to gaze upon the picture that he gives here. As I said, we tend to think of salvation as this individualistic story about how I can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus, like I said, all well and fine, but there's more to it than that. When you come to the Bible, and in particular, the visions painted in the prophets, the prophetical books, this simplistic little story of me and Jesus and our personal little relationship seems embarrassingly small and feeble. God's picture here is a much bigger, much grander one. And the problem with having a small, little picture of who God is and what he cares about is it encourages us to think of God as smaller than he really is. And the things that he cares about being more narrow and pretty small as well. See, our gospel is always a reflection of who we believe God to be and the things he cares about. So let's look at that for a minute, if we would. In verse 9, God talks here about, At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now that sounds fine, doesn't it? Sounds cool. You may have picked up on the fact that it's the speech of the peoples, not just Israel, but the peoples. It's a bigger vision than just one particular group of people, that all of them, there's that 
big language again, that all of them may call upon the Lord and serve him with one accord. But that with one accord is interesting. I think what you actually see here, particularly if you understand the story of the Bible, is this is a reversal of what happened with the story about Babel. If you recall, back in Genesis, there's this story about how the peoples of the earth decided that they would work together to build a tower to reach up to God. And do you remember what God in his grace did? He said, I will not allow my people to join together in their rebellion against me. He dispersed the people. He confused their languages so they could no longer work together in opposition to God. And what God is talking about here is a vision that is a reversal of that. And yet he talks about working together even as he talks about what he's going to do. Do you understand? Instead of God, all the people of the earth gathering together to stand against God, to build up their own righteousness, if you will, he says, no, I am going to get them to work together, but it's by giving them pure speech, by transforming them so that they can work, the Hebrew says, literally shoulder to shoulder, and we use that phrase sometimes, putting the shoulder to the plow. And that's, that's the picture God gives here. God is going to purify his people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation so that they could work together in the vineyard of the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? God never gave up his plan to make for himself a people of every race, tribe, and tongue, even when those people united themselves against God and his plan. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, is a picture of God's grace undoing, reversing the confusion and the the disconnection of peoples. The day of Pentecost, Pentecost was a Jewish festival, a harvest festival. It was a festival of first fruits. And God is signaling by pouring out the spirit and bringing people together in the kingdom of God and in the church that he is committed to making a people of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. That was the beginning of the reversal of Babel, but Zephaniah sees an even greater reversal, a purity of speech so that mankind can serve the Lord together, literally, like I said, shoulder to shoulder. Now, what God plans to bring is what we should be working towards now. Note this. God's plan and what God promises to bring gives his people their marching orders. We don't want to find ourselves working at cross purposes with God. So what we see here, what God promises to bring, a purity of speech that will enable us to work shoulder to shoulder, gives his people, his church, their marching orders. We should take note. How does that work itself out among City Church? Here, where we have been placed, what does God want us to do 
to get on board with this mission. It's important that we reflect on that. We also see, though, in this passage, not just a reversal of the Tower of Babel, we see a great coming home story. The prodigal son parable is not the first time God speaks about this coming home story. In verse 10, he says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So he speaks about no matter how far removed you are from God, no matter how far you think you are from God, God is not thwarted by that. May that be a rich encouragement to us today. I don't know where you came from, how you came to be here this morning, but you need to understand the heart of God is to bring his people back to him no matter how far away they are. It also, though, this picture involves the healing of shame. You see this in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So the point is, God doesn't just say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with shame. No, he says, some of the shame you're dealing with is because you've rebelled against me. Now, of course, that's not true of all the shame. I, I, I tend to think that the, the twistedness of our hearts is such that we don't feel shame about some of the things we should, and we tend to feel shame about things that we shouldn't. We're just really mixed up in so many ways. But regardless, God says the shame particularly the shame that comes from the rebellion against me, I will deal with it. Shame, I think in many ways, is the satanic counterfeit of true humanity and true humility. Where does true humility come from? Look here again at verse 11. He goes on, says, For then I will remove from your midst you're proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak nor lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What's the picture here? The picture is that the Lord as a shepherd who will take care of his people so that they may graze and lay down. In other words, you don't have to exalt yourself. You don't have to. You don't have to take care of everything. You can lay down and graze because the Lord who is in our midst, the Lord who is in our midst is the Lord God. Therefore, we don't have to exalt ourselves. As a matter of fact, understanding the Lord our shepherd and the care and even the removal of our shame, which we couldn't remove by ourselves, should actually humble us, right? We saw that in that passage we read in Ephesians. The gospel excludes boasting because there's nothing we did to deserve it. You see, the irony of pride is seen here in this picture. The haughty, exalted ones, where are they standing? They're standing on God's mountain, kind of patting themselves on the back, feeling like they deserve to be there. Do you realize how crazy that is? 
Being invited to stand in God's presence, friends, should never lead us to look down on others because grace excludes boasting. You have to ask, how is it that I can stand before the presence of God? How is it that I can be invited to be on his holy mountain? Only by grace. And then God speaks here of a purified, healed, and humble people. And oh, how we need that. He promises to remove those who think of the feast days as a burden. Those who refuse to delight themselves in God. And again, think about how what he promises to bring gives us our marching orders. As we consider where we stand. It should humble us. What should our response be to this picture? We'll look at verse 14. Sing out loud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. That's worth singing about, isn't it? We should exalt and sing with all our hearts. Has anything ever made you want to sing with all of your heart? We are to ponder what God has done and what he promises to do. I'm so glad we sang that hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. There is a, a poetic device that John Newton, Newton put into that hymn. D do you see it? Let us love and sing and wonder. There's a progression. And as the hymn goes on, the first uh, it says that in the opening verse. It's kind of like how preachers do what we call billboarding. Today, there are three points, and I want to tell you this is what I'm going to talk about, the three points. That's what he does. John Newton's a preacher, so when he writes a hymn, he writes a hymn like a preacher. We're going to talk about love, sing, and wonder, and there's a progression. We should love the Lord because of what he's done, but the more you think about it, the more it should actually move you to sing, not just quietly ponder. And yet, after singing, even singing isn't enough. Let us wonder. And, and I think about this, this line by Charles Wesley, another hymn writer. He talks about um, lost in love, wonder, and praise. In other words, love, the love of God should transform our hearts. It should cause us to sing, to exult with loud singing. But then at some point, when the grace of God really pierces your heart, all you can do is be silent to be quiet. The mystics talked about prayer this way, that there's a deeper level of prayer where you can't even, you can't even speak the words because you're so overwhelmed with what God has done. Do you see, do you understand what a big deal it is that the Lord would take away our offenses? So this passage, if we had read the first part of Zephaniah, God speaks judgment, well-deserved judgment upon his people, but he says that judgment is not the end of the story because my plan is bigger. And it involves making a people of purified speech and humble hearts. He is in our 
midst. I think about that hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder. Verse 4 is my favorite verse. I think of let us love and sing and wonder as the greatest hymn in the English language. I'll talk about it a little bit tonight, but I'll just give you a little preview. Verse 4, I think, is the greatest verse of the greatest hymn. It says this, let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy store. What is what do they point to? They point to the cross. When through grace in Christ our trust is, because that's the only way our trust can be in Christ, through grace. But when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Friends, I think so often we think of the gospel as being good news that we can be forgiven but we rarely think about how what God does in the gospel secures his smile forever. The gospel does not just forgive us, bring us back to zero, and say, okay, now live a life that will bring pleasure to God. And, and it doesn't take long before you realize, I can't live a life that brings pleasure to God. But I've already been forgiven, so now what do I do? I, I, I just feel like I'm a continual disappointment. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is bigger than forgiveness. The gospel is that in Christ, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. And righteousness is the beauty that comes from having done everything God has required from the heart. And do you know who did that? Jesus, the one who said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. The one who in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, please, if there be any other way, don't make me go to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you know who gets credit for that? Everyone who is in Christ. Everyone who is united to him by faith. So justice smiles and asks no more. The cross is not sort of God tricking his heart where he wanted to judge us and now he can't because Jesus died in our place. No, justice is satisfied. God smiles. God is well pleased with the plan of redemption. And he's well pleased with his son, he says, who carried it out. And he's well pleased with all those who have put their faith in Jesus because God looks at them with the robe of righteousness that Christ himself has earned. Now that's worth singing about, isn't it? That's worth singing about. That's the kind of truth that we come in here to sing about so that it gets into our hearts. So we go out into the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that my value is based on the bottom line that I can contribute to this corporation. I don't believe the lie anymore that my worth and my value depends on who likes me and who thinks I'm great and how many likes I get on social media. No, justice smiles because it's been secured by Jesus. I love this line in verse 16. I actually like the NIV translation here. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The NIV says, don't let your hands hang limp. And I always think about uh, our second son, Isaac, and how when he was little, if he would do something kind of wrong, he would literally do this. <laughs> just us. And I just always think of that picture. Don't let your hands hang limp. 
Sadness is appropriate in a broken world, brothers and sisters, but we must fight against the hopeless despair with the truth of what God has done and promised to do. So in our time left, let's consider how the gospel is better and bigger than we think. Because, brothers and sisters, what this text reveals is that God is crazy about his people. He's in our midst, it says in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's an embarrassing picture for some of us. I don't want loud singing. Kind of God rejoices over his people with loud singing. He's in our midst. Let's consider this first. The heart of the covenant, the heart of the Bible is this message. God made us so that he could marry himself to his people and be with us. God with us. It's the point of the garden. It's the point of the temple. It's the point of the city to come. None of those are the same place geographically, but all of them are about the same thing. What makes the garden so wonderful is God is in its midst and his people can be with him there. What makes the temple so wonderful is God has provided a way for his people to come and be with him. As he tabernacled among us in Jesus, who says, I am going to show you what the temple was always about, and not just show you, I am going to bring it to fruition. The book of Hebrews talks about how what Jesus did, going into the true temple, not made with human hands, enables us to come boldly before the throne of God. Again, being with him has always been the point. It's always been the point. And this is no little thing. It's no little thing for God to be in our midst. That's the whole point of the Old Testament sacrifices. God has, has to show his people, listen, you can't be with me in your sin, in your shame. But I'm not content to let that situation stand. I'm going to do something about it so that you can be with me. Right? It's no little thing that God is in our midst. It required the death of his son to reconcile us to God so that we could enter boldly into his presence. And then it says here, he will quiet us with his love. Now, I always think about like a mother singing lullabies over her children, and that's a sweet image. But actually, the Hebrew word used here for love is a little shocking, it's not the word hesed, which is the word for covenant love. It's actually a Hebrew word that usually is used for passionate marital love. It's the word used for how Jacob loved Rachel. It is. Seems a little shocking. But I want you to consider this. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, said one time, the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. So too, the love of God is the love that puts all other loves in their place. He quiets us with his love because his passionate love, his passionate love 
should be the thing that changes how we think about all other loves. And then he rejoices over us with singing. God breaks out in song over us. Can we get our hearts around this astonishing picture? If you remember one thing from the sermon, from the sacrament, it's that God reveals himself as giddy with love for his people. And it's even more powerful when you consider the kind of people that he sings over. Look at verse 19. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. That's a pretty good definition of what it means to be a Christian. Someone who's had God deal with all their oppression, the lame and the outcast who've had their shame changed to praise and renown in all the earth. The gospel brings a secure love that wasn't earned by your goodness or your greatness. And here's the good news. That means it can't be lost by God seeing who you really are. He already sees who you really are. You may be able to impress other people, but God says, yeah, you're kind of lame <laughs> and you're an outcast, but I'm going to gather you and I'm going to deal with that because I love you and I want you with me, right? The vision here, like I said, is even more astonishing when we remember what it took for God to bring this to reality. Because Jesus brings in the lame and the outcast, how? By becoming the lame outcast himself. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was crucified outside the city in a place of shame, literally a trash heap is what Golgotha was. And then Hebrews says, let us go out there with him. Don't pat yourself on the back. The church should never think of themselves as the great ones, but as the one who've been called to go be with their crucified God in a place of shame. And he will own them as his brothers and sisters. Isn't that good? Jesus brings in the lame and the outcast by becoming the lame outcast himself, thus securing our place by earning it for us. I sometimes explain to my students, particularly, you know, if you do RUF, you have to be, um, you have to be willing and even enjoy talking to college students about their relationship problems. And uh, I, I regularly, I'll talk about this reality. There are two interpretations to every event. And so often, like this is the theme of every stupid sitcom and romantic comedy, where basically there's some great misunderstanding because everybody is trying to communicate by their actions and they're trying to read every little thing that the other person does without ever actually talking face to face, right? It's like every, everything, oh, well, she did this, so maybe that means this, like why don't you just talk about it, right? So, I, you know, imagine this. You know, a guy asks a girl out on a date, and then he's like, uh, you know, I'm talking to him, and he's like, you know, I, I really, really like this girl, but I don't want to come on too strong, and I want to scare her away, so I, I haven't texted her or talked to her in like three days. I was like, okay, well, does she know that? Because I don't think that's what was communicated, okay? We need God to reveal his heart to us, to tell us 
who he is and what he thinks. And brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've ever had one of those DTR talks, one of those define the relationship talk where the other person says, you know what, I love you too. That's what this passage is about. That's what this supper is about. It's what we have in his word. It's what we have in his meal. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to commune together. Lord, we do thank you for your love. We thank you that you, <laughs> astonishingly, in, in ways that just boggle our minds, are giddy in your love for your people. Oh, tune our hearts to sing your grace now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.